Father, we are so grateful for the Scripture, whether it comes out in a song or a sermon or a testimony. We just thank you, God, that you have spoken and that truth has been revealed. We know the mind of God. Lord, we have been rescued from living in error and deceit, and you've given us a love for the truth. And you help to see that it is more precious than gold and sweeter than honey. And we thank you, God, for what you do in our life every week, corporately through this church in the Word and our precious meetings with you privately. But would you, Lord, today reinvigorate us to the secret of the Christian life found in the reading of Holy Scripture? Would you remind us today, Lord, of what can happen and what does happen every time we open that book, that window. Father, for the hurting souls here today, grieving over all sorts of opposition and stress, loss, regret, fear, I only have to offer them, Lord, your words. I can only hold up Christ, that they would see his infinite beauty and grace. And I thank you that he is enough to fill all the planets and all the stars of the universe and beyond with hope. And by your grace and power, would you have them look at him. And around the world, wherever the gospel is being preached, in the hardest places where it will cost the life of those who speak and receive it, Would you cause even the darkest and hardest minds today to look and see the beauty of God and be saved? In Christ's name I pray. Amen. If I were to ask you today uh, to tell me, to describe in your mind something beautiful, a place, an event, Beautiful to you, what, what would you say is beautiful to you? M- my mind would go to things like the canals of Amsterdam, uh, the 700-year-old St. Charles Bridge in Prague, um, athletic precision under pressure, uh, the smell of the new tire section at Costco, a well-preached sermon, this ordered, strategic Early morning coffee and Bible reading in the sunroom at our house. Baptism and barbecue and testimonies at Lake Cooley with you. 14,000 men singing in harmony at the Yum Center in Louisville, Kentucky at Together for the Gospel. So what about you? I say, what is beautiful to you and what, what comes to mind? And then equally important, when I say to you, what is beautiful, what emotion is immediately connected with that object? What emotion floods your soul? So if you were to ask me, you know, what adjective did you use when I told you mine? I think things like joy, peace, hope. These are all adjectives that flood my mind when I go to these places. Uh, The seeing of beauty is so great to me that it seems like the wisest thing one could do in life is to continually encounter beauty. 
so that I could continue to experience joy and peace and hope. So if you were to ask me why, the why of why I read my Bible, why I enjoy reading my Bible, it's one word, beauty. Because when I open the pages of the Bible, I'm actually opening a window that allows me to see the beauty of God. And when I see His beauty, my soul immediately begins to run through fields of joy and peace and hope. Many people view the Bible as a book of artwork, page after page, pictures of ancient history, when actually the Bible is really more like a window that when you open it, you see ultimate beauty, infinite beauty, you see God himself. So when I open the Bible, I see what is best, and really I see what is ultimately real because the world in which we exist today is not really ultimately real. First John chapter 2 says, the world and its desires are passing away. How can something that's going away be ultimately real? So we open the Bible to a real world, an eternal world, where lives an eternal king. And every time I see an eternal king, eternal life flows from that king into my heart, filling me with joy and peace and hope. So I don't read the Bible because I have to. I read the Bible because I get to. There's a window in the sunroom of my house, and every time I open it, I see God. So the greatest need of my soul in life is to see beauty and to utterly be strengthened by it. The greatest need of your life is to see beauty and be strengthened by it. That's why you, that's the why of reading the Bible. David figured that out in Psalm 27, verse 4. Though an army encamps around me, my heart will not fear. Though a war breaks out against me, I will keep my trust. One thing I have asked of the Lord, and this one thing is what I desire, to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life and to gaze on the beauty of God and to seek Him in His temple. So anytime somebody says that they've narrowed all of life down to one thing, they've got my attention because it means they've done some thinking. So David says, when I think about all the things I need, I figured out I only really need one thing. So here's the scenario. We saw it in, you know, in verse 3. An army is chasing David. An army's chasing him. And in response to the army chasing him, he says he only needs one thing. Now, if I have an army chasing me, I'm thinking I only need one thing, and that is weapons. Or fire from heaven. Either one's fine. Lots of weapons, lots of fire. David says, no, I want to gaze on the beauty of God. Now, David is not diminishing the importance of weapons. Because if you read all of uh, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, and you look at all of the chronicle of David's life, you will see that he's described as a mighty warrior. It's 
like 33 separate military conflicts he was involved in. He was a stud. He was a, he was a, he was a marine. <laughs> he was a fighter. He loved weapons. He knew the importance of weapons. So yes, David is pro-rocks, pro-slings, pro-weapons. He's a Second Amendment guy all the way. He believed in the right to own rocks and throw them if necessary. But he knew that there was a, an enemy much greater than any enemy that he might face from time to time, and that was fear. Paralyzing, debilitating fear. And that enemy was something he would have to face every day. He didn't face armies every day, but he faced fear every day, so he needed a plan, a strategy to overcome the tendency of his flesh to live in fear. And the only way that fear could be driven out is if he looked at something that was more powerful than fear. David says what's more powerful than fear is the beauty of God. So that's why he said it was the one thing he wanted to look at. The one thing he wanted to see was the beauty of, of God. David was a king. Kings have lots of things to do. There's lots of things when you're a king. You've got to build walls, uh, throw banquets. You have to conquer other kingdoms. You have to invite dignitaries to come eat with you. And then you've got to write a bunch of thank you notes. So you're very busy if you're a king. But David said there was a one thing that came before every other thing, and that was to make sure that every day he opened the window to look at the beauty of God. That was the one thing that was more than all other things. Because when he saw the king of the universe who creates a hundred million galaxies, and out of a hundred million galaxies set his affection on one tiny planet called Earth in order to bless it and love the people who populate it, David was so overwhelmed with that reality. He, his life was filled with peace and joy and hope. And David also realized that if he failed to look the one thing every day, if he failed to look at that king, he would look at lesser things. And we know the tragedy of that story in 1 Samuel chapter 11, that on that day when he stopped looking at the king and, stopped, and started looking at a woman belonging to another man with lust, that a lesser pleasure filled his heart, leading him to adultery and later murder. Because he sought satisfaction away from the greater pleasure. If anyone has ever really understood the concept of the importance of beauty and gazing upon beauty, it was an 18th century Scottish pastor named Thomas Chalmers. And he preached one of the most famous sermons in church history called uh, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And I'm going to guess that you probably in the past week have not used the word expulsive, so it would be my joy to just give you some synonyms. When we say an expulsive power, we're talking about it driving out power, a power that expels, a power that removes, a power that has, has the power to evict, a power that dislodges, a power that casts out. All of those are expulsive powers. And, and let me just tell you, 
If you have not had the opportunity to read Thomas Chalmers' sermon, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection, please let me encourage you before the day is over, don't. <laughs> it's, you're just going to get bogged down. It's, he was, Thomas Chalmers was not only a, a very devoted pastor, but he was a trained academic philosopher, and he writes like one. So it's, it's a very, it's, I really like reading old dead guys, not that one. That was, that, was a, that was a labor, but it was worth it because I know it's with all the things you read when you, 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 you wade through the language of another generation and another time, another culture, another mind, you can glean some things. I would like to share the expulsive power of a new affection, that sermon, in about three or four sentences. This is what he said. A man will only give up sinful affections when his heart is filled with a new affection. This is the why of Bible reading. We're searching for new affections. Again, Chalmers. The best way of casting out an impure affection is to admit a pure one and by the love of what is good to expel dislodge the love of what is evil and this last one comes from a guy named Richard after reading Chalmers I said okay I think I'm ready to paraphrase him the only way that you will let go of a cherished object is if you see a more beautiful object. That's how you defeat sin, by looking for something that's stronger. Picture in your mind a man standing by the sea. He's on the, sh on the, on the shore of a community called Lesser Pleasures. Every object that he's ever touched on the community of Lesser Pleasures has provided him with brief pleasure, but always followed by emptiness or guilt. Every pleasure in the community is come marked with a warning that this will happen. But despite the fact of all the warnings, <clears throat> is there anything that you think you could say to persuade him to let go of these lesser pleasures in the community of lesser pleasures? Nope, not a thing. He may have a check in his spirit, but unless you can show him a greater pleasure, he will not stop. He will not leave the community of lesser pleasures. But what if one day a beautiful island city floated by and suddenly he could hear sounds across the water that were sweeter than he ever heard? He saw flowers and trees more beautiful than he ever imagined, and the breeze that blew through the trees filled the residents of the community on the island with peace and joy as supernatural life entered their body through the breeze. What if he could see on the island, pain and death were not permitted there, and what if he could see a sign on that island that beautiful homes were given to all newcomers at no cost? I bet he might leave the community of lesser pleasures if he could see that island. So only if a man were to be able to see such a place, then and only then would he be able to leave where he is now. No matter how much your mind may know 
that your habits will leave you guilty and empty. You will not leave this world where you are until you see a better world. Even your willpower, even your willpower is not enough. Because we've all been there. If you've been controlled by a sinful habit, a sinful affection, let's just call it an addiction. If you've ever been controlled there, you might have victory over that addiction for a short time. You might have momentary success by the strength of your will, the weight of your guilt, or the fear of punishment. Going to hell if you do that again. Going to hell if you do that again. It might work for a little bit, but unless your heart sees something new, something better, a more beautiful affection, it will eventually welcome back the old affection or... Simply replace the old affection with another lesser affection. Jesus said this would happen in Luke chapter 11. When an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house, the person, the body, I left. When it arrives, it finds the house swept and put in order. So here's a heart that has driven out old affections, old demons by sheer willpower. But notice the condition of the heart. There's not a new affection inside that heart. Just swept and cleaned by sheer willpower. You just sweep, spring cleaning. Got to get this addiction out. Look what happens to that heart that's empty. Then the spirit goes and takes seven other spirits, more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there, and the final condition of that person is worse than the first. So people can cry over their sins and regret them on Sunday and then be back where they were on Monday, and maybe worse. The human heart cannot empty itself. It cannot break with the love of sin, the love of self, the love of the world. The only way to get rid of an old affection is the expulsive power of a new affection. It's Thomas Chalmers. So where do you go to find a new affection? The Bible. You open the window. That's what David said in Psalm 119. Open my Eyes that I may see wonderful things in your law. That's, that's why we read the Bible. To live without God is to live without hope. And to live without hope is a guarantee that you'll be mastered by worldly affections. So we open the window of the word to see the beauty of God that fills our hearts with hope. So that's why God has given us a Bible to see wonderful things in His law. If you've ever really looked at how the Bible is laid out, it's simply laid out like this God's people chase after lesser affections, they enter into a very painful crisis. And then they see God in his grace rescuing them, and that produces a new affection. 
the way preaching ought to be done is the way, because the way Scripture is laid out. It's, there's always crisis followed by grace. So I just want to share with you a few stories this morning of grace. Help you with a new affection. We'll start with the story of the prodigal son, Luke 15. I'll tell it rather than preach through it. Here's a boy who is totally self-consumed. He went to his father and said, could I have the estate, the finances that were going to be given to me when you die, which essentially said, I wish you were dead now. He left, he went to the land of wild living, and he wasted all of that precious money, and he was just on the border, he was definitely homeless, and on the border of starvation, and thought to himself, I think I will go back to my father's estate and ask if he'll take me back as a slave. Can I come back and work on the farm? So he goes back and makes that suggestion to the father. This was the father's reply in Luke 15. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was lost and is found. The goal of all Bible reading is to open the window so that you can see that kind of grace coming from that kind of God. Because I'm telling you, when that son, Saul, had a new affection for the father, his old affections of the far country went away. New affections always drive out. Old affections. When I read and understand that God freely loves me, I don't have to slave on the farm to earn his forgiveness and live in shame. That love is so strong and so free. It expels my love of sin. Another story of the grace of God that we see in Scripture is found in John chapter 4, the woman at the well. Here in John chapter 4, Jesus is on the move. Heading back up to uh, his hometown headquarters in Galilee. Coming from his last ministry assignment in Judea. And he chooses to pass through Samaria, which was a place where normally Jews would never go because Jews and Samaritans didn't get along. Jesus was about to do something to bridge that cultural, spiritual Gap. About 12 in the afternoon, Jesus comes to a well where he was tired and sat down. But not really because of that alone. He had an appointment with a woman who was coming to get water out of the well. She did not know about that appointment because God rarely checks with our calendars when he chooses to do a new work in our life. The conversation started off a little bit awkward when Jesus a Jewish man asked her, a Samaritan woman, would you give me a drink? She was a little shocked by that. Then the conversation moved on, not about water, but about her relationship with God. And then Jesus said, what you really need today is living water, which was a cool way of Jesus telling her, you need the life 
that flows out of me to come into your life. And he then explained to her that what she needed was his spiritual life instead of the pleasures that she was pursuing from physical, physical intimacy with six different men. Well, that definitely got her attention. She was shocked, and she just looked at him and said, Are you the Messiah? He said, Yes, I am. Wow. You are the one for 2,000 years God has promised to send a special man, anointed man from heaven to bring peace on earth. You're the Messiah? Yes, I am. I want to show you three ways in which, from that story, and we are affected by affections and why we need to strive for new affections. Three ways in which our hearts are affected by affections. Number one, our hearts are created by God to desire. We were created to want. Desire is a good thing. It's a God thing. The woman came to the well, and it was a hundred or... It's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be about 115 degrees that week. So maybe pretty near there with this woman. So when it's 115 degrees at midday, you're supposed to be thirsty. You're supposed to want water. That's what makes you human, is to want, to have desire. That's how God gets us to him, is through desires. The only problem is when desires look the other way other than God, our desires lead us to that which is lesser. For her, it meant settling for five men instead of one man, Jesus. When we don't open the window of the word, we'll take whatever comes our way. Point number two about affections. Merely seeing the worthlessness of sinful pleasures will not dislodge them from our heart. If we were going to interview this woman today on the stage, and I would say, ma'am, in one word, how would you describe, woman at the well, how would you describe man number one? Worthless. And man number two, worthless. Man number three, worthless. Man number three and four, worthless. Man number five, worthless. And man number six that you're presently with, worthless. Yet she kept going back. She knew they were worthless, but she hadn't yet seen a greater affection. Therefore, she was settling for lesser affections. Thomas Chalmers, it is not enough to understand the worthlessness of the world. One must value the worth of the things of God. A person cannot leave the world until he sees a better world. You can't tell a man to stop wasting his money on worthless things until you show him something better to spend his money on. Point number three. The pleasures of sin cannot be evicted until we see something more pleasurable than sin. Something greater, something more must be presented to our hearts 
and our minds. So what did the woman see that was more pleasurable than the six men before? She tells us because the Bible records her testimony. Without Dean, without video, we have her testimony. Here it is. John 4, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in Jesus because of the woman's testimony. And here it is. He told me everything I did. Shortest testimony. Well, let's see. Nope. Second shortest testimony in the Bible. I think the shortest goes to the blind man in John 9. I was blind, but now I see. That's pretty short. He told me everything I did. That's your testimony? That's what makes you glad? Yep. He saw it all and forgave me and accepted me. And in that day, she developed a new affection and said goodbye to all the former affections. Greater affection is the only thing that can rightly and effectively replace our love for the world. It's why we preach the way we do here. Just constantly trying to hold up. I mean, just, you know, we just hold up what the Scripture holds up. I mean, if you just want to ask over and over again, why, why go through Ephesians or why go through Galatians? Because I just know it's the, it's systematically, I know what God's going to do. He's just going to constantly hold up before us better affections, beautiful affections, or beauty that will give us affections to overpower lesser affections. Old affections are so strong they can only be conquered by a stronger new affection. Do you remember that story in Exodus chapter 7? This is one of my all-time favorites in the Bible. Moses and Aaron had been summoned by God. You go to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, because he has my people enslaved and been using them for slave labor for uh, 40 years. Two million people in slave labor. And Moses and Aaron, you go tell that king, let him go. How do you think that's going to go? I mean, you got the leader of the world's greatest empire, the world's greatest economy. He has the benefit of two million people offering free, free, free labor. You think he's going to let them go? So God tells them, when you, go, when you go see Pharaoh, I need you to do something. Aaron, you've got this walking stick in your hand. When you go see Pharaoh, make the announcement, let my people go, and then throw the stick down, and it's going to turn into a snake. That's cool. And it does. And then, right when he does that, Pharaoh brings out of all of his magicians, which obviously demon-possessed um, people that had powers of dark, magic, whatever, they threw down their sticks. They turned into snakes. And then all of a sudden, Aaron's snake. Look what happened. Exodus chapter 7 verse 12, but Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. His snake ate their snakes. This is what we need. Only thing that'll work. New affection, better affection, swallowing up old affections. Fear 
lust, greed, bitterness, you name it, every day they come slithering into our life. And they will conquer any of us unless we are captivated by a beauty that is more powerful than that which slithers in. I was meeting this week with a, a, I have a new relationship in my life of a, of a young man that I'm discipling a, along with Danny V. And uh, Danny V couldn't come this week because he's having a baby, priorities. So we came in and I, I was, I was, I was uh, talking with uh, Coach and, and uh, we, it's precious this week. He, he, he's asked us, would you, take us, would you take me through the book of Romans? That's a first for me. Somebody coming to me saying, I want to study the Bible. Let's start with Romans. So we're in Romans chapter 3. And this week he said to me with tears streaming down his face, I have made so many mistakes in the past that people are likely to bring them up when I go back into my community and try to share my newfound faith. And he just was gripped. You could just condemnation, fear of man. So, where am I? I'm in the greatest book of the Bible. I've got his answer. So I read to him Romans 3, 25 and 26. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. When I read that, you probably sort of said a polite, do what? He did. I know everybody does when they first see that. So here's what this says. I will say it in my terms, then illustrate it, and then go back. This is what Romans 3, 25 and 26 says. Through the cross of Jesus Christ, God is able to honor the law and show mercy to lawbreakers at the same time. So then I share this story. Think about a courtroom where a good law-keeping, law-loving judge is presiding over the court. And in walks a man who's a lawbreaker. He has conned a local widow out of $50,000 and spent that at lavish, sinful parties. But he's legitimately broken over the pain that he's caused, the guilt that he feels. The man weeps. He hears all the laws he's broken. But his tears cannot change what he's done. Money's gone. The only plea that he can enter is guilty. And the only proper legal response the judge is to sentence the man to prison. The judge also weeps as he looks at the man. They were best friends growing up. Graduated from high school together in each other's weddings. He loves the man, but to set him free would be a mockery of justice. The city would be appalled that the judge had set aside the law and did not defend the widow. And by ignoring the law, the judge himself would now be guilty and would have to be 
removed from the bench. So this is the scenario that we all face as we stand before God. We're weeping, he's weeping. Law's got to be kept. We broke the law. The wonder of the gospel is that Jesus Christ walks into the courtroom carrying the cross where he was crucified for our sins. And when the judge looks at the cross, he sees divine blood and knows that justice has been done. And when the sinner looks at the cross, he sees divine blood and knows his sins are forgiven and his guilt removed. The shedding of Christ's blood satisfies the justice of God and produces safety for the sinner. The death of Christ enables God to honor the law while setting lawbreakers free. That's Romans 3, 25 and 26. That's grace. It's ours by faith and believing it. Which again causes Thomas Chalmers to say the truth of the gospel what I just said, makes the demands of the gospel to become our heart's desire. Chalmers again. We know of no other way by which to keep the love of the world out of our heart than to keep in our hearts the love of God and no other way by which to keep our hearts in the love of God than building ourselves up on our most holy faith. And so where does this faith come? come from Romans 10, 17. Faith comes from hearing the message. And the message is heard through the word of Christ. Without a vision of Christ, without joy in his forgiveness, you cannot deny the world. You will not deny the world without a vision of this Christ. You'll not have enough affection of something better. You'll go to something lesser. But the more you know that Jesus paid the debt, the greater will be your joy in knowing that you are in debt to one whom you can never repay. And you will love this God who's not asking for repayment, but is demanding full devotion because now you see that he's worthy to receive it. You tell an unbeliever that he should love God supremely, and he'll say this is an impossible burden. You tell a heaven-bound Christian he should love God supremely, he will say that is a joyful privilege. He has a greater affection. Does that mean we're going to no longer struggle with sin? Woo! No, I struggle with sin this week. No. No. No, because our heart's always going to be tempted to stop looking at God, start looking at the world. Listen, this is the way I describe it. And it's so funny, when Lisa and I were putting our little talks together this week, we got to this section, and she goes, uh, I, don't, I don't like that. You use that with your people, I'll use it. I don't like that. So this is, what I, this is the way I describe it. It's like a nuclear reaction happened in a city. The reactor blew up, it was on fire. city was about to be burned down. Those experts came, put, down, put out the reactor. It's no longer on fire. The city is not going to burn down. But for the 30 miles around the city, it's all contaminated soil. 
In the Garden of Eden, a nuclear reactor blew up when man rebelled, Adam and Eve rebelled, and all the world with them. And that blew up. And we would have all been judged and condemned and sent to hell had Jesus Christ not come and satisfied the justice of God. And so now forgiveness is possible. The reactor is out. There's hope. But the land, our body, is all contaminated with the fallout of the reactor. So we're forgiven and we're loved and we're accepted, but we still have contamination from the explosion. And that will not go away until our bodies become new. The flaws will not leave us, leave us until we become unflawed. And so why read the Bible? So you'll not live a life of giving in to your flaws. Let's say the Bible, or let's say your heart is a violin. Let's say your heart is a violin. Anybody who's ever played an instrument, whether it be a guitar, violin, anything with strings, understands, whether it be an hour, a day, or especially several days, that beautiful instrument, those strings become untuned. They fluctuate daily, getting out of tune, expanding and contracting with humidity or dryness of the season. Just leave an instrument, a stringed instrument alone, and it will become untuned. And so why do we read the Bible? Is simply to get back in tune with the most beautiful musician in the universe, God. So why we read? To retune the heart. Retune the heart. Let me close with this beautiful hymn. Come thou fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy grace, what we just saw. Just keep my heart in tune with pictures of grace. Streams of mercy, let me see mercy, never ceasing, that's going to produce joy, call for songs of loudest praise. Get my heart in tune with God, see his grace, mercy, joy, I don't want lesser affections. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor. Yes, I'm in debt to God, can't repay it. He's not asking to repay, just obey me out of joy. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. Let that goodness, like a fetter, let that be my chain, God's goodness. Let that goodness, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Let's pray.